In my younger days, I was uh, given the privilege, I guess I would call, I'm not sure I use the word privilege, but I was, my way was paid to a fundamentalist youth conference. As some of you might not know fundamentalism in that kind of category, but I'll give you a little bit of a description of it. Um, it was a week-long conference, and in that week, there were three things that were pounded into you. Your hair should be short, your skirt should be long, and your kids should be spanked. Those were the three messages. That was all that was there. And there was something that was kind of an overtone, something that kind of flowed over the whole thing, which kind of defines all fundamentalisms. Uh, this was a fundamentalism that said that if you didn't agree with us in every point, you are the enemy, and if you happen to be friends with someone who disagrees with us, you are also the enemy. You might ask, why am I telling that story? The reason is because I want to introduce a phrase to you. I've coined it, so it probably won't catch on. But I call it the fundamentalism of autonomy. The fundamentalism of autonomy. Autonomy means self-rule, self-law, being in charge of oneself. And these days, in our culture, the fundamentalism of autonomy dominates. Um, Carl Truman wrote some great stuff about this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. For example, he says, education is designed to allow the individual simply to be himself. In other words, the whole point of our education system is to teach the fundamentalism of autonomy. The individual simply makes himself the creator of any meaning that there might be. Truman goes on to explain that this helps us to understand in recent years the uh, push to make the classroom a, quote, safe place, unquote. That is a place where students go not to be exposed to ideas that may challenge their beliefs and commitments, but to be affirmed and reassured. He says that hostile commentators berate this tendency as that caused by the hypersensitivity of a generation of snowflakes. In other words, baby boomers look at that and they go, oh, these kids, they just haven't been through tough times. Let them get through some tough times, they'll straighten up and fly right. But Truman notes, no, that's not what's going on here. What is happening is the training of a way of thinking that is the slow but steady psychologizing of the self. Anything that hinders my outward expression of my inward feelings or anything that challenges or attempts to falsify my beliefs about myself and thus disturb my sense of inner well-being is by definition harmful and to be rejected. That is what I mean by the fundamentalism of autonomy. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because of where we are now in Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31 this morning. Please open your Bibles there. And we're going to answer some very basic questions. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What commission does God give to human beings? And what provision does God give to human beings to fulfill that commission? At every point here in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, you will come clashing against the fundamentalism of autonomy. At every point you will. <laughs> it's going to be a raucous ride for you because as we have been swimming in our culture, it will be easy for us to look at these texts and say, have dominion, subdue? We will look at these texts and say, male and female? We will look at these texts and say, be fruitful and multiply? At every point, the fundamentalism of autonomy that dominates our culture is going to come clashing against the authority of God's Word. So be ready for that and make it your prayer. Spirit of God, enlighten my mind by your Holy Spirit to understand and apply your truth. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. We're about halfway through day six here. God's made the animals. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Please have a seat. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It doesn't mean that we look like God. Let's get that out of the way right away. Uh, because God's a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, Jesus said in John 4. It's not about in some fashion having some physical appearance. But let's think about several ways in which we are made in the image of God. Um, I'll think of three to start with, and then we'll dive into some things in a little more detail on that. The first is a longing for significance, a longing for significance, a longing to be acknowledged. Um, Psalm 8 that we began our service with, what is man that you're mindful of him? 
the Son of Man, that you care for him. Now, we need to be careful here. God does not have longings as we might ascribe to human beings, but God does want to be acknowledged as God, and we long to be acknowledged as well. Have you ever had someone that you didn't know knew your name come up to you and call you by name? Didn't it feel good? Like, wow, they, they know my name. There's a, a longing for us to have an acknowledgement that we exist, that we're here, that we matter. A second way in which we're made in the image of God is that we have the capacity for self-reflection. It says God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And all the way through the text, it's God saw what he had made, and it was good, it was good, and so on. That's a statement of reflection, of looking back and over the event of creation and, and evaluating it. It's good, it's good. We, likewise, as human beings, have the capacity to look back and over the events of our lives and evaluate them. Now, we don't see that as, as many things as good necessarily as God does, but we have the capacity for self-evaluation. In fact, we would say that someone is seriously mentally ill who is incapable of self-reflection. By the way, this idea does not exist in the animal world, right? They don't look at what they've done and they, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Your dog will not do that for you, right? Um, this idea is also found here in this phrase, let us make man. It's a determined choice on the part of God. Now, we have nowhere near the freedom that God has on these sorts of things, but we also have the capacity for determined choice. Uh, we just finished the Olympics. You saw determination in these athletes. That's a, a beautiful thing that reflects the image of God, a determination. Um, one of my favorite illustrations of this is my wife Carol. When she was in high school, she wanted to be a nurse. So she went to the guidance counselor to say, I, I'd like to know what classes I need to take in order to be, have all the things necessary for being able to be admitted into nursing school. And the counselor looks over her file and says, uh, well, I just don't think you've got it to be a nurse, so I'm not even going to tell you what you need to do. And he didn't. So Carol, determined as she is, figured it out on her own and went to nursing school and became the charge nurse of the intensive care unit where that guidance counselor would have gone if he had had a heart attack. <laughs> this issue of determination is something that's wonderful. We're not machines that look back and make judgments out of modified behavior like an ape or out of the mere tripping of neurons. We actually make judgments and decisions about what is going on around us, and we even get upset when others' judgments don't match our own. One of the factors, I think, in this Ukrainian thing that maybe Vladimir Putin did not count uh, or factor in enough is the determination of the Ukrainian people. It's something that reflects the image of God.
A third way in which we're made in the image of God is that we are deeply relational beings. Did you, did you see that there in verse 26? Uh, Jewish scholars really puzzle over this one. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The plural there. That's a hint at the triunity of God. It reveals the understanding of God as a relational being in himself before anything existed. Before anything was, there was an us. <laughs> an us of God. If we're made in God's image in this relational way, it helps us understand our value of relationships. And it helps us, it helps us explain why solitary confinement is such a severe punishment. It also explains why relationship brokenness is so commonly at the core of mental health issues, of drug abuse, of addictions, of domestic violence. We are relational beings, and that way we are made in the image of God, and when those things get broken, all kinds of other things get broken too. We are, therefore, relational beings by design. And we will look more at the closest dimension of this in marriage in coming weeks. Now, it's really hard not to get ahead of our story here because we know in chapter 3, sin enters into the world, right? And that messes everything up. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about that for just a second and then move on. But the entrance of sin created a massive brokenness of relationships, first with God and then with each other. Uh, and two things emerge. First, there's a sense of shame, a sense that we ourselves are defective, that's shame, and also a sense of guilt, a recognition of our own wrong or of others' wrongs. Those two things emerge from uh, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, a shame and guilt that comes to us uh, because of the massive brokenness of relationships. But even here, don't we see that there's something that is to be revered, to be worshipped, that God would be so kind to make us unique out of all of his creation? I think of what Mark Twain said Man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. You see, animals are incapable of this. Human beings are unique. The answer to these problems is not the I am God of the new age or the psychology of denial of guilt or shame. You know, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of money having a counselor tell them, yeah, you feel shame, but you shouldn't. Yeah, you feel guilty, but you shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, this idea of you are not guilty, you are not defective is not the Christian message. The Christian message is we are all guilty. <laughs> we are all defective, every one of us. But God has sent a Savior. He's, he's come to seek and to save the lost. We should reflect for a bit on this God's making us in his image. 
let us make man, it says, in our image. That means, that word man means all human beings, male and female. The word that's translated man here in Genesis 1 and 2 will refer to three different things in the chapter, and the context determines what it means. It can mean man as in all humankind, man as male, and then there's other times where this word, Adam, is the name of a real person, Adam. But here, it's this generic term, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. It's not just males that are like God and females are like males. No, that's not what the text is saying. The text is quite clear that both male and female reflect the image of God directly. Now, as we think about this, there probably isn't any more of a uh, a conflict right now with the fundamentalism of autonomy than these six words at the end of verse 27. Male and female, he created them. That is, that God created two and only two genders. So I want to dive for a moment into the transgender debate and this fundamentalism of autonomy. And I'll begin by saying that the issue of intersex folks is not in question here. To be sure, the brokenness of the entrance of sin into the world has caused people to have uh, some dimensions of chromosomal damage that make it difficult on this gender issue. But they are so rare and so few, and we should not make them or those dear ones be the folks that determine our debate here. It's not what, that's not what it's about. Secondly, the issue is not about, and here language is important, it is not about the sex one is assigned at birth. It's not an assignment, like it's a pronouncement of the doctor. I hereby pronounce you male. It's not an assignment. The birth certificate is not an assignment of gender. It is a recognition of what already is. It is a recognition of gender. It is the pronouncement of God. Now, gender dysphoria deserves our compassion, not our embracing. The reason is that this is the order of God. It's not human beings made this up. God says, male and female, he created them. The fundamentalism of autonomy wants to defy God's order with one's own personal order. When you ask people why it is that they believe the way they do, they say, because I do. (laughs) They are their own authority. That's the fundamentalism of autonomy. And this is affecting children. Uh, Let's do a thought experiment here for a moment. Would you want to have your five-year-old, your five-year-old self, okay, decide whom you should marry? Just go back to when you were five years old. Would you want that five-year-old self to decide whom you should marry? Of course not. And yet we are being told that five-year-olds should be able to decide to have radical, lifelong, altering surgery to bend their bodies out of conformity with what God has made. This is the fundamentalism of autonomy at work. 
Consider this comment from a central Illinois Fortune 500 company. Some of us grew up at a time where we were taught very narrow definitions. Notice how they're using words here. We're talking about, they're calling what we're talking about here as narrow of these very broad characteristics. If the doctor, notice how the language, pronounced you a boy at birth, like it was the doctor's decision. No, it wasn't. It was a recognition. You were supposed to grow up feeling presenting like a boy and attracted to girls. If the doctor pronounced you a girl at birth, you were supposed to grow up feeling presenting like a girl and attracted to boys, period. Only two available options, and since most of us fit into one of these options, we think that's the way things are. Well, we were wrong. Beyond the fact that it's really not the purview of a corporation to make such moral judgments, you have to ask yourself, where do they get that? Where can they pronounce it with such authority? The answer is the fundamentalism of autonomy. Now, What's the Christian response to the transgender issue? Like all sinful thinking, Christians are called to love and compassion for the sinner, which reflects the love and compassion that God has for all sinners. And that when transgender people come to our fellowship, and they have, we welcome them with love and compassion because we are every bit the sinner that everyone else is. We've found a savior. We've found a rescuer. We've found an authority higher than ourselves. And they need to see that good, as good news as well. So we're called to love and compassion. At the same time, the definition of what love means must be biblically informed, not culturally informed. Culturally, love has come to mean endorsing human autonomy, to embrace the fundamentalism of autonomy, that we must affirm what a person thinks about themselves if we're going to love them. That's not a biblical definition of love. In the Bible, love means a commitment to a person, a commitment strong enough to tell the whole truth to them. And if we are afraid to tell them the whole truth, we really don't love them very much, do we? Now, I want to address the challenge of what I call the bullying argument. Today, we are told that if we do not agree with a person's self-assessment of themselves, we are bullying them. In fact, laws are being, punish, uh, being enacted to punish bullying. But know that that definition of bullying is not physical or even emotional intimidation. Rather... It is any advice or counsel, however loving or supportive, that goes against the fundamentalism of autonomy. So that Canada's C4 law, which was just enacted last month, prohibits what they call conversion therapy. But you know what conversion therapy means? It means anything that anyone would say to a person that they could live differently. And if you tell them that advice, you are subject to up to two to five years imprisonment. All of this 
the Christian is informed by these six words at the end of verse 27, male and female, he created them. Now, of course, there's much more to male and female than the transgender debate, which didn't exist for most of human history. The complementary duality of male and female forms a clear structure for the formation of all human relations. To ignore the fact of two and only two genders is to miss out on the joy and clarity of God's revelation to us about ourselves. To deny the fact of two and only two genders is to deny the authority of Scripture, to distort human relations, and to presume a position of authority higher than God Himself. Now, being made male and female also has implications for marriage, doesn't it? Uh, It has implications for same-sex relationships. It has implications for all friendships. The fundamentalism of autonomy says we can do whatever we want. This plays out in the world of divorce, where people divorce because they believe that their best self can only be actualized by abandoning a covenant. It plays out in the world of same-sex relationships and homosexual relationships. The fundamentalism of autonomy says we do whatever we want. Being made male and female, however, impacts all friendships despite our world's defiant rejection of the impact of that. The world wants to say, it doesn't matter what your gender is. You just call this, everything's this amorphous same thing. It's not true. The Bible says otherwise. To be a Christian is to submit one's own will to the will of God as revealed in Scripture. So we come to the next question, We've looked at what does it mean to be made in the image of God. Next, what commission does God give to human beings? And here we're going to look at the joy of creativity. I hope you'll capture the joy here. Twice, God says, let them have dominion. Verse 26, let them have dominion. Verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. That is to take on, God has given us the privilege of taking on the task of reshaping his creation to be both more beautiful and more productive. Uh, Having dominion is really important. For example, it's behind why you want the snow removed so you can go where you want to go. It's a having dominion over creation. No other animal is going to have dominion All movies and science fiction novels to the contrary. Godzilla will not take over the planet. The dinosaurs won't emerge from someplace in Costa Rica and take over. It's not going to happen. Human beings alone have this dominion. Creation was good, but notice it was not complete. God delegates to the human race the task of improving upon creation. The best condition of the planet is not the one in which human activity can't be detected. And that's something that everybody thinks about these days. Man, to go back to the pristine thing where there were no human beings that ever touched it, that's the best of all worlds. No, not according to God. To the contrary, the best condition is one in which the stewardship of human beings brings an artistic beauty 
and an improved functionality. That's what God means when he says, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And this involves work. Work was not a part of the curse of sin. Work is something that we will do forever. Now, the curse of sin meant that our work has weeds, it has problems, has bad stuff associated with it. So, in the new creation, we'll come home from work and we'll ask each other, well, how was work today? Awesome. (laughs) Did you get a lot done? I got a ton done. And what are you doing tonight? Oh, we're going to have fun. And what are we going to do tomorrow? I can't wait to go back to work. I mean, that's going to be what it will be in the new creation, and it's how God designed it. There's the joy of creativity. No animal can do that. Your cat doesn't sit there and go, I worked so hard today. It also involves recreation, doesn't it? Recreation. The fact that we can enjoy ourselves in things that aren't necessarily in part of that production, that's going to be something true too. And this joy of creativity brings with it an awareness of our strengths and weaknesses that animals don't possess. Of course, God has no weaknesses, but people bear the image of God in various ways, don't they? It's simply not true that every person bears the image of God in the same way. Some are athletes, some are artists, some are great at business, some are inventors. But it's not our utility that's ultimately the issue here. It is that we are creators. Even the most developmentally disabled person can create. We need to encourage that creativity. Let me give you a little experiment here. And I, don't want to, I, I do want to raise a hand. How many of you can say, um, I can draw? How many of you can draw? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. There's a few people. Okay. If I asked a group of kindergartners of this same size in this room, how many of you can draw? How many would raise their hands? Whoosh, right? I can draw. What happened to you guys? Now, we need to encourage that creativity. Now, of course, there are some ways in which we've evaluated ourselves and we go, yeah, five, I thought I could draw, I can't now, right? That's true. But the point is, is that this joy of creativity is revealing another part of our being made in God's image. It is the joy of mastery. Do you see that? Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. The act of reshaping the creation to suit our purposes. It is why we have homes. It is why we have highways, why we have skyscrapers. It's why we clear the snow from our highways after a snowstorm. It's why we clear the rubble after a tornado or a hurricane. We don't go, well, didn't nature do something beautiful there? Let's leave it. It's why we go to the moon. It's why we climb mountains. In the early 1960s, President Kennedy went to Houston, Texas to speak at the Rice University Stadium. Now, you need to know Rice is a technological college, and they happened to be in the same conference as the University of Texas, and they just got clobbered every year, okay, in football. They just got clobbered every year. But Kennedy, on this very hot day, it was like 110 in the shade, 
Kennedy gives the reason why they're building the Space Center in Houston and why we're going to the moon. It's less than a minute. Let's listen to the president. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I don't know about you, but that, that was kind of motivating to me, right? And what is Kennedy calling upon there? He's not just calling on us to beat the Ruskies to the moon. He's calling on the human spirit made in the image of God to go and subdue, have dominion over the world, of the, over, the, over the creation made in the image of God. It's not just in big things, though, that we desire mastery. A desire for mastery is behind why you might make up a to-do list or why you have an appointment calendar. You're wanting to express your mastery over your time. Animals do not do that. Raccoons do not gather thinking, okay, what's on your calendar for this week? It doesn't exist. We are unique in the image of God. Human beings are distinct from animals. We are, listen to this, we are more like God than we are animals. Now, evolutionists like to trumpet all the ways that we're like animals, how we share so much of our DNA, even believing that we are nothing but animals. But let us think of all of the differences, and you will conclude with me. We are more like God than we are like the animals. Consider what the New York Times said a number of years ago. Dolphins and their behavior and enormous brains suggest an intelligence approaching that of human beings, or even some might argue, surpassing it. I have yet to hear a dolphin making that argument. While the world can say you are special, it can give no reason for it. We seek we find the world seeking to make human beings merely animals in an evolutionary chain and at the same time trying to make animals human. No, there is a distinct glory in human beings, in having the ability to have a relationship with God and others. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. It's a serious thing to live in a society with possible gods and goddesses to realize that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you could see it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption as you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
you've never met a mere mortal. It is immortals whom you work with and laugh with and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors, but next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object ever presented to your senses. This is what makes the abuse and exploitation of human beings so wrong, more wrong if you are going to make a scale than what is done to any other creature. Now, there is also this privilege of filling the earth. The earth was made good, but it was not made complete. Uh, The earth before the fall was not in some state of perfection. There was work to be done. God wanted human beings to do it. We have a calling from God to harness the world's abundant resources, to corral them into productive purposes, and to reshape the world to be better than it was at the end of God's six-day creative works. And this is what gives us a proper view of environmentalism. Today, environmentalists think that the best possible world is one in which human beings do nothing to exercise dominion, or even the very best world would be one completely without human beings. But God right here has said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and he never said, okay, okay, stop. He has never rescinded that command. Now, we think that the earth is hopelessly overpopulated. That's what we've been taught. It's far more empty than we imagine. Consider this. Current world population, 7.9 billion people. The amount of square feet in the state of Texas is 7.5 trillion square feet. That means you could give every person on earth 980 square feet and everyone in the world would fit in the state of Texas. Now that means two things. One is that the state of Texas is really big. Not as big as Texans think, but really big. The second thing is that the earth is not overpopulated. Listen to what some of these environmentalists say to capture not just what they're, what they're, they're they try to marshal arguments, but the, the philosophy behind it is what they're doing more importantly than the marshaling of their so-called facts. Listen to these. Um, We must make this an insecure and inhospitable place for capitalists and their projects. We must reclaim the roads and plowed land. That's central Illinois, folks. (laughs) Halt dam construction, tear down existing dams, free shackled rivers, return to wilderness millions of tens of millions of acres of presently settled land, or another Penti Lincola. Everything we have developed over the last hundred years should be destroyed. Or, John Davis, I suspect that eradicating smallpox was wrong. It played an important part in balancing ecosystems. David Graeber, human happiness and certainly human fecundity, that means our capacity uh, uh, of, of reproduction, is not as important as a wild and healthy planet. Some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. Or member of the British royal family, Prince Philip. In the event that I am reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus to contribute something to solving overpopulation. This is the arrogance of an elite in a fundamentalism of autonomy. And a denial of the word of God.
This is often used then to describe that we are right on the precipice of certain death, right? People say this all the time. Right now it's in the global warming debate. I won't get into the facts of global warming. In fact, I actually believe that the planet is warming. But these people are wanting to deny the Genesis 1 account and our privilege as stewards of God's creation in an attempt to have the wickedness of the fundamentalism of autonomy dominate. Here is how it was played out in 1976 in Lowell Pont's book, The Cooling. The, the, the world they were fearful was cooling too fast. This cooling has already killed hundreds of thousands of people. If it continues and no strong action is taken, it will cause world famine, world chaos, and world war. And this could all come about before the year 2000. Let's not think that these people are somehow objective and they have no agenda. No, they have an agenda. They want to deny God his rightful place as God and people as they're in their rightful place as people and they want to hold on to a fundamentalism of autonomy. Contrast this, these words of alarm with the words after the flood in Genesis chapter 8. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never We think that human beings are a blight upon our world when God views human beings as producers of abundance. And so Christians, by the mere fact of living in this culture of the fundamentalism of autonomy, are vulnerable to being persuaded without our even aware, being aware of it, being persuaded by our culture rather than by the Bible on such important matters as whether to have children and how many children to have. There's no direct command from the Lord on these matters, but please know that you are being influenced by an anti-child culture to think you don't have enough money to have children that children will get in your way of happiness and thriving, and that the best thing you can do for the planet is to have no children. So, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does, uh, um, what commission does God give to human beings? And now we come to our last question. What provision does God give to human beings? He gives us food and food production capacity. Notice, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You will have them for food. And he's given food to all of the animal world as as well. Note that the important part here is not the provision of food, it's the capacity to produce food. And this is something that I shared with you about a year ago in a message on economics This is a graph of corn production uh, per acre uh, from the 1800s to the present time, and you can see it's a hockey stick. Why? Because in about the 1930s, all of a sudden, farm production just went 
And so when people write these books about how we're all going to starve, they're thinking that everything will continue as it always has been, and it won't. God provides capacity. God gives human beings ingenuity and the earth to subdue. Again, the planet was not this pristine place of perfection before God made human beings. Rather, God made a habitat perfectly suited for the unique nature of human beings to produce and perfect. And so, uh, God provides ecological balancing. Look at it in verse 30. Uh, He has the beasts and the birds and the things that creep on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. This doesn't mean that we cannot upset that balance, but it's important that we don't think that we're in charge of more than we really are. All too frequently, it is our attempt to do God's job that gets us into trouble environmentally. Um, So invasive carp were imported from Southeast Asia to the southern United States to help aquaculture and wastewater treatment facilities keep retention ponds clean. Flooding and accidental releases allowed these fish to escape into the Mississippi River system, and so now the Illinois River looks like this on some days with these carp. And there's all kinds of protective measures that are being made to try to prevent these carp from getting into the Great Lakes. We need to be aware that we are stewards and that we can mess things up, but the key point to be made is that God builds in a self-regulating capacity to the earth that is extremely difficult to ruin. It can be ruined, particularly in local contexts, but it's really, really well-tuned. And so we come to the end. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Again, God reflects and calls everything very good. But even this does not mean that it shouldn't be improved upon, developed, and shaped. As we improve upon, develop, and shape our surroundings, we're called upon to make a similar judgment, to know that what we've done is very good, and if it's not, to change it. Sometimes, we just don't make any evaluation at all. There is a yearning in the human heart for freedom, but that has been twisted into the fundamentalism of autonomy, a yearning for self-law. My dear brothers and sisters, the only true joy and freedom can be found in surrender to another's will, God's will. All other ground is sinking sand. Because we're made by God for His glory. Our hearts will never be at rest until we surrender to the Lordship of the one who made us, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, our hearts leap with joy when we consider (laughs) that you are an eternal God and that you have made us. And as we look around at other people, We should be drawn to worship of you and joy in the uniqueness of every individual, every person, and take great delight in it. At the same time, Lord, I pray that everyone here in this room and those listening via live stream would find that true joy and freedom is found in the surrender to another's will, not to to do our will, but to do your will. We're made for you. 
for your glory. And our hearts will never be at rest until we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In your name we pray. Amen.